This morning we are beginning a new series of messages from the Old Testament book of Malachi. If you are looking for Malachi, it is easy to find. What you need to do is go to Matthew's Gospel, which is the first book of the New Testament, and take a hard left. Because Malachi is the final book of the Old Testament. And it is a small book, four chapters, roughly 55 verses in total. Probably depends on the translation that you have. But four chapters, 55 verses. It's one of those books where you think, oh, we're, we're going to be in Malachi. I've got to figure out where that is so I'm not embarrassed when it's time to flip and find these little minor prophets. But Malachi is an easy one. Go to the New Testament. Go left. You'll find Malachi. We're going to spend some time this morning introducing the series, introducing the book. I know that that is not the most exciting time to sit and listen to something like an introduction, but you also know here that context is essential in our understanding any book. So we really do have to lay the foundation before we can understand what the scripture teaches. We want to know what context uh, it has. And so that's what I'm going to do for the first half, and then I'm going to tackle just a little bit of the beginning of Malachi, and we'll call it good for today. Uh, the book is known by the name of its author, who is the prophet Malachi. And in the fashion of many of the Old Testament prophecies, he's introduced in the opening verses of the text. And in Hebrew, the word Malachi means my messenger. So this is a message from the Lord to his people, believed to be uh, written somewhere in the mid-5th century B.C. There isn't a time stamp on Malachi. There's no way for us to be sure exactly when it was put to scroll, but scholars place it around the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. And they do that for a couple of reasons. One, because of the similarity of the issues that all these people are dealing with. So roughly the same issues around the same time. Um, and also for some technical reasons that have to do with language that I'm not going to bore, bore you with. But we know that Malachi is in this time period that we would call the post-exilic period in Israel's history. What that means is it is after the Babylonian captivity, and you're familiar with your Old Testament, you understand that Jeremiah, um, I think it was Jeremiah, Ezekiel, prophesied the, uh, the captivity of the Israelite people, and they were taken captivity into Babylon, and there they stayed for 70 years. And then they were allowed to return to Israel. Um, under the decree of the Persian ruler Cyrus. They came to their homeland, they rebuilt the temple, it was nowhere near as beautiful as the first temple, but at least they were home and they had a temple. They were free to leave Babylon then, these Jewish people, they returned to Jerusalem, but they weren't really free, they weren't truly free, they remained subject to Syria, subject uh, to Persian rule. It wasn't heavily populated, Jerusalem at the time, or Judah, they suffered hatred, um, their neighbors, they, um, they were what one commentator described at the time as being a religious and political backwater. So Israel at this time is just far removed from its glory days. No longer an independent nation, doesn't have an army of its own, no longer under a Davidic king. If we were to say that morale was low, then that would be an understatement. The people in Israel are dejected, rejected are sad and um, rather lackadaisical, we're going to find, in their approach to life and to God. The earlier promises that had been made by prophets Haggai and Zechariah, promises of blessing and promises of prosperity and expansion and peace and even the promise of God's own 
glorious presence. These had not yet been fulfilled, and it had been a while. Proverbs 13, 12 tells us that when something we desire is realized, when what we're wanting comes to pass, when it becomes ours, it says it's a tree of life. It invigorates the body. It, it, it rejuvenates the soul. But when the opposite of that is true, when delay in the attainment of some much-desired good is our reality, when what we want most eludes us, doesn't seem at all to be coming our way, well, that causes our spirits to sink. Delay leads to disappointment, which can lead to disillusionment. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, is what the proverb says. And this is kind of where the people of Judah are. Um, their affections for God have cooled. They haven't given up on him. They haven't given up on their religion. They haven't given up on their religious practices. But they really have lost faith that any of that even matters much. As one commentator described it, he said, they're in that gray no man's land, that imagined neutral territory with neither the courage to respond wholeheartedly to God nor the courage to refuse him. As a result, both the worshipers and those who lead them are going through the motions. Their cumulative discouragement has given way to reluctant obedience at best and active disobedience at worst. And what's happening in Israel at this time is that people are practicing sort of a dead orthodoxy, a works without faith. It's neither meaningful to them nor acceptable to God. And Malachi is written to sort of expose this reality. This is where you guys are at. This is the truth of how it is right now. Because in the blinding nature of sin, which is true for all of us, the people just didn't know it. It wasn't obvious to them. Their drift into spiritual apathy had taken place slowly, as it often does, and subtly, as it often does, and imperceptibly, as it often does. And in this case, it had taken place over decades. So the original recipients of Malachi's ministry didn't seem to recognize and actually, and to be honest, in some ways didn't really care how far off of God's mark they had fallen. They have profaned his covenant. The priests are bringing polluted offerings. The people have become deceitful and they've become stingy. And the half-hearted approach that they have toward God has become their new normal. Maybe you can identify with that a little bit. Sometimes we drift. And sometimes that stale, cold, walking through the motions of religion is what we're left with. I seem to have more sympathy for the Israelites in Malachi's day than a lot of the commentators that I'm reading. I don't know why that is. I'm sure a psychologist could tell me. Um, but they're on a downward spiral away from God. And so there's a need for a prophetic word. There's a need for an intervention. There's a need for a course correction or what we would call a wake-up call. And that's what Malachi is written to deliver. And in a very unique manner. It's different from other books of prophecy in the Bible. The prophet's words are written as a dialogue. You'll see if you haven't read ahead and you uh, will begin reading it, you'll see that his writing contains several well, six to be exact, what are called disputations. And they come in the form of declarations and responses and elaborations. They'll go like this. God makes an assertion. He makes a statement of truth. 
And then he describes how his people are responding to it. And usually that's in the negative. They're denying it. And then he provides a fuller substantiation to his point. In your study of this prophecy, you may want to underline or circle or note, uh, however you might do it in your Bible, occasions of the phrase, but you say. That would almost be a, a subtitle for this series. It could be, but you say, because God says this thing, but you say something different. Those, when you highlight those, you, what you're really highlighting is the pushback, which is the anticipated challenge of the people to the declarations of God. And they may not be literally saying what's being attributed to them here in these exchanges, but we know this, God knows and searches the heart. So he knows what the people are thinking. So he says something, and he already knows what you think about it. And in Malachi, he's saying the truth. Sadly, at this time, the recipients of Malachi's ministry were not convinced that they had a problem, and they weren't convinced that they were the problem in truth, they thought that God was the problem. The reason their lives weren't unfolding the way they wanted them to in their minds was because God wasn't holding up his end. But that makes Malachi a series of rebukes. God is trying to correct the people's thinking. As King David put it in Psalm 51, verse 4, God is just when he speaks and blameless when he judges. So Malachi intends to help his audience see how the Lord's observations and conclusions are true and they are accurate and they are supported by evidence. And also he wants them to know what can be done to right the ship of their religious lives. This is a ship that is listing seriously, it's in danger of sinking because of the nation's malaise. So in its structure, Malachi is, there's no other book in the Bible like Malachi. It's very unique in its structure, but in its substance, it's like a lot of the Old Testament prophecies. It is a merciful plea for God's people to return to covenant fidelity. Again, the book is a series of rebukes, and so that means it's probably not going to rank in the top ten of warm, fuzzy books in the Bible. But we shouldn't uh, let that discourage us from getting the most out of it that we can because Malachi really at its core is just another attempt of a loving God to help his people see their true estate. This is God again and again intervening in history to say, see what is true, see what is right, see how you are, I love you, come back to me. This is Malachi over and again. God loves his people enough to pursue them and God loves his people enough to correct them. The writer of Hebrews teaches us this. The Lord disciplines those he loves. And that's what's happening in the book of Malachi. Now you might be wondering, why on earth would we be studying the book of Malachi? So let me give you a few reasons why we are doing this. First, we believe it's important as, as Christians that we hear from and learn from the whole Bible. I know we all have our favorite parts of the Bible, but it's kind of important that we hear from the whole thing. And if we're honest, I believe there are parts of Scripture that we never would read unless maybe we're compelled to by a reading plan. Does that say, anybody else want to admit to that? There are parts of the scripture that you'd be like, I am not reading that book. I pick it up and I have no idea what it says in the first six verses and I'm going to the Gospel of John. So our custom at United Baptist is to try to preach through whole books when we can, and it is our strategy to cover the different genres that we find 
in his scripture. So what that does is it protects us from cherry-picking texts, uh, the things that we're the most comfortable with, or it makes it so that we can't avoid the things that we're uncomfortable with because there's passages in the Bible that make you uncomfortable as well. We try to cover it all as best we can. And when we study books like Malachi, you're going to see it. We are reminded of the richness of God's word. Malachi, when we're through, is another one of those books that will probably say, well, I really never paid much attention to this, but this is a sweet book. You know what? We could say that about just every book in the Bible. It has a purpose. It's there on purpose. And that's why we're studying it. So no, there's no other agenda other than it's time to study a minor prophet. And this is the one that I chose years ago, probably. Um, Malachi is interesting in that it is a book written to a community of believers. So here's another reason for us to study Malachi. We, we often read the scripture and apply it individually. So part of a challenge here in this book is to discern not just the truth that it contains for us personally, but to see the implications corporately. Malachi is written to a community of believers. We at this church, we are a community of believers. So while we'll be going through Malachi and trying to figure out how, can this, how does this apply to my life and what are the implications of it for me, we also need to be asking the question, what is this saying to our church? What does this have to do with our church family and our life together? Thirdly, Malachi is a book that exposes hidden sins. And the interesting thing about the sins that Malachi exposes is that they are hidden, but not so much hidden in a malicious way. We all know what it is to hide sins in a malicious way or in a, in a in that self-serving way that we don't want to be discovered, we don't want them to be known. This isn't what's going on here. These are hidden sins but they are not hidden maliciously. They are just not recognized by the people for what they are. They are not recognized as sin by the people. They are not recognized, their behaviors and attitudes are not recognized by the people as problematic. So hopefully as we explore God's revelation in Malachi, it will bring to light maybe any of our own hidden sins or any of our own bad habits or unbiblical traits that have somehow over time become acceptable to us, have become normal to us, and so we become used to them. We don't see them. Malachi is an expose. Malachi is written to say, this is the truth about who you are. This is the truth about what's in your heart. And we hope that as we get into the book of Malachi, it will do the same thing for us as a church and as individuals. This is the truth. This is the truth. And lastly, as we approach this book, we want to keep in mind that while the circumstances of the people in Judah in 430 B.C. were much different than anything we're facing in Maine, America in 2023 A.D., what isn't different is the human condition. You see, when it comes to the human condition, there's nothing new under the sun. Men and women today are prone to the same errors and the same wanderings and the same feelings and the same distortions of reality experienced by our ancestors. We harbor the same, very same penchant for sin, the same inability to see our sin at times, we carry in ourselves the brokenness that was introduced to the human race by the disobedience of Adam in the Garden of Eden. We all have this family and familiar bent. We're like the vehicle that is out of alignment. It keeps pulling us toward the ditch. Our sinful misalignment constantly pulls us away from the Lord. So as we studied the old text of Malachi, we'll look first to see how it spoke to those original hearers and at the same time, we know, because these are the very words of God, 
They are timeless. They will, in fact, never pass away. They will speak to us today. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Our Father, as we come to your word, we do so humbly and thankfully, gratefully, Lord, that you love us enough to share your revelation with us, to, to reveal yourself in the pages of your Holy Scripture. As we embark on this journey through this small book of prophecy, we pray, Lord, that it would be a big blessing. Let a small book be a big blessing, we ask. Father, help us to see the truth as you explain it and describe it and elaborate on it. And help us not just to see it in some theoretical, philosophical way, but help us to wrestle with it. Help us to see where it might be true for us as well. By your Spirit, expose in us those things which would lead to our half-hearted worship. or treating you in ways that you do not deserve or falling short of the glory with which we have been called. Bless our time in your word that remains, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Malachi 1, 1, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. If you're reading in the King James Version right out of the gate, you don't have the word translated oracle. Your version says burden, the burden of the word of the Lord. This isn't just a prophesy, prophecy that Malachi is making. The Hebrew word can mean that, but it is for a couple of reasons a burden. It is a burden in the sense that it bears weight. Friend, God's word is weighty. It is not man's word. It is not on par with any man's word. What we're about to hear is not Malachi's musing. This word is inspired by the Holy Spirit. This word is divine. This is a revelation of God from God himself. It is the word of the Lord, which means it has real import, real significance, real meaning. It is weighty. And there is something else that the prophet knows as he embarks on delivering this message, something preachers often are keenly aware of. Delivering the word of God can be burdensome to the soul of the messenger, the one who has to deliver it. Because it is a serious, it is a grave enterprise to be an ambassador for God, to be a herald for God. There's a reason, a, re a good reason, some famous Bible guys scrambled to come out from under the calling that God put on their lives. Maybe you've experienced some of that as well. Think about Moses arguing with God uh, about his ability. To, you remember those lame excuses he laid out? I don't know. What's your name? I don't know. I don't want to tell him. I don't, I don't speak very well anyway. I don't know why you're calling me. I can't communicate. You know, this is what some of these famous Bible guys do because they knew the weightiness, the burden of what they were being asked to do by God. Think about Jonah refusing to go and warn his enemies. Think about Isaiah who became painfully aware of his uncleanness, the uncleanness of his own lips. I'm not worthy to deliver this message. I, I, I can't do it. It can be hard on the messenger it can be a burden, but Malachi is faithful. We have this oracle. He shares the burden of the word of the Lord. Malachi chapter 1, verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord. So let me ask you, do you believe today that God loves you? This morning in our Sunday school class, we talked about 
uh, how important it is for us to be in touch with our core beliefs. And one of those foundational core beliefs that we have to, we have to be square on is God's love. Do you believe that God loves you today? Does it even matter to you whether or not he loves you? In the knowledge of the holy, A.W. Tozer wrote this. He said, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. So friend, in your deep heart, what do you conceive God to be like? Is he a loving God? Or is he not a loving God? As we crack the book of Malachi, we're confronted right away with this serious, one could rightly say, fundamental heart issue. And it's God, notice it is God who raises it first. It's God who calls it what it is. Probably because it's not the sort of thing that any so-called believer in God would actually dare to say or question out loud. But we can be assured that it is an issue, or the Lord would not waste time on it. And the issue, the question is, does God love Israel? Does God love his people? Not everyone there is convinced that he does. In fact, many believe now that he does not. And so God takes the initiative to begin this message by forthrightly stating what many had become skeptical of. I have loved you, says the Lord. You might not feel like it. Your assessment of the times may lead you to think otherwise. But I have loved you. You know, for Israel, the Lord's historic love goes all the way back to the start of their nation. In Deuteronomy 7, we read, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. God chose Israel because he loved Israel. Deuteronomy 7, 6 and 7. And then the passage continues. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with the mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Scholar Peter Adam writes of Israel, they would not have existed as God's people unless God has loved them, had chosen them in their ancestors in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and had maintained his constant faithful covenant love by forgiving their sins and rebellions, restoring them when they were in trouble, Rescuing them from their enemies, providing for their needs, answering their prayers, providing them with priests and sacrifice for atonement and sending prophets, wise men and wise women to teach and encourage them. To deny that God loved them was to deny God and to deny the grace of God in making them his people, to deny their own identity as God's flock, nation and people and to deny their special calling to bring blessings to all the nations of the world. Of course, God loved Israel. But over time, many forgot it, and some began to deny it, and probably many more began to doubt it. I'm going to ask you, brothers and sisters, what do you think might lead a child of God to doubt or deny the love of God? What is it that would have to happen for us to doubt or deny the love of God? And I want to suggest here that Israel, 
is reeling and deceived by the blows of a not uncommon one-two punch combination. And that is this, a disappointing present and a devalued past. Israel is beginning to question the love of God because they're experiencing a disappointing present and they have a devalued past. Let me tell you what I mean. Present circumstances speak loudly. And when life doesn't go the way that we expect it to, or the way that uh, we think it should, our faith can be shaken. And, and certainly our faith in those times is put to the test. And as I said in the introduction, the delay in the restoration of Israel's prosperity that was predicted by those prophets had led them to disappointment and to disillusionment. And in simple but unattractive terms, the, the people were holding God responsible for behaving the way they thought he should, and, and they were distancing themselves from him because God wasn't towing their line. And that sounds awful when you say it like that. And it is awful. That's why it sounds awful, because it is awful. But before we judge these people, have, have you ever had this, this moment of spiritual maturation in your life where you're reading the Bible and you're like, Oh, that stupid person. Why would anybody do that? And then a little bit later on in your life, you do the same thing. <laughs> well, we should have some humility as we come here to these people of Israel who are suffering, and they're suffering greatly. But they've responded poorly to it. They're blaming God for it. We can judge them, but I want to ask you this. Who in his mind, anyway, hasn't entertained a conversation that goes something like this? In the face of disappointment, God, if you really love me, you would have. Fill in the blank. Given me what I asked for. Blessed me with what I wanted. Provided me with what I said I needed. Or, God, if you were really a loving God, this, but fill in the blank. Awful thing. Bad circumstance. Never, never would have happened. Tough times can question us. Can, can lead us to question God's love. Tough events lead us to question God's love. As commentator Ian Dugwood put it, how can I know God really loves me when everything around me is far less or far worse than I had hoped and prayed for? An unwanted divorce? A career opportunity lost? The dashed hopes of a miscarriage? A terminal diagnosis? The sudden death of a loved one? Things we want and don't get, things we don't want and get anyway, these can very quickly translate into a referendum of sorts on God's love. Recall from our recent reading in the Gospel of John, the story of Lazarus. Jesus isn't far away from Lazarus, not far from Bethany, but he, he didn't go there when his friend Lazarus was sick. He could have healed him, but he didn't. And it was only after Lazarus died that Jesus went. And what did Jesus' friend and Lazarus' sister Martha say to him? Do you remember? Martha said to Jesus, John eleven twenty one, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. And what did Jesus' friend and Lazarus' sister Mary say to him? John eleven thirty two. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying, Lord, if you'd been here. My brother would not have died. Do you think it's a coincidence they both said the same thing? Do you think maybe they might have had a bit of conversation before them amongst themselves 
before Jesus came to town. Where is he? Why isn't he showing up? Why isn't he coming to fix this? He can fix this. Where is he? Doesn't he care about us? Martha and Mary are respectful enough in this passage. They're totally respectful, but what are they implying? Lord, you could have stopped something that hurts us from happening, and you didn't. And one might conclude from a human perspective there that maybe Jesus really didn't love this family the way that everybody thought he did. And one question that would arise naturally out of something like that is, does he really love us? Perhaps this is why in his writing of this account, John lets us in on Christ's feelings in the moment. Shortest verse in our Bible, John eleven thirty-five. 35, Jesus wept. But it's the one that follows that intrigues me, an important affirmation of Jesus' feelings for Lazarus, where doubt may have crept in. See how he loved him. That's what the Jews said about Jesus. See how he loved him. He loved him. He did love him. When it felt to others that he may not have. When Mary and Martha might have been questioning that. He loved him. When it felt like he be, might not because he didn't do what someone thought he should. He loved him still. I have loved you. God says to his people. I have loved you. And we're reminded again that when something we desire is realized and what we want comes to pass, it becomes ours. It's a tree of life. It invigorates the soul. It rejuvenates the spirit. But when the opposite of that is true, when delay in the attainment of that much desired good is our reality, when what we want most is not going to be ours, it eludes us, it doesn't come our way, our spirits are prone to sink. Delay leads to disappointment, leads to disillusionment. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. And it is this heart, this hurting, disappointed heart that questions the love of God. Well, for you and I, we are blessed with Scripture. So listen, being forewarned is being forearmed. As we walk through the inevitable trials of this life, brothers and sisters, when the Lord's love doesn't seem to be obvious, it doesn't mean it's not there. Know that, understand that from Scripture. We can admit and we must admit the sovereign will of God is perplexing. Frustratingly so at times. Why does he allow certain things and not allow others? Why do things happen the way that they do? But whatever conclusions we might draw about God in those tough times when we're questioning and wondering, one thing he doesn't want us to think about him ever is that he doesn't love us. It matters so much to him that it's the first thing he raises with these people who have become half-hearted in their worship and their approach to God. God is love. The Bible tells us that God loves his children. No doubt about it. Whatever other struggle you may be having with the will of God today, do not doubt his love. He loves you. It was a disappointing present, a disappointing time of life that led Israel in Malachi's day to question that love. And we can add to that recipe for spiritual malaise a devalued past. Somewhere along the line, it's easy to have happened. Again, we can judge these people, and I want to encourage you as you read through this book, don't. 
just don't. Okay, somewhere along the line, for the people of Judah, God had become a what-have-you-done-for-me-lately entity. And their collective answer was, not much. They had lost sight of the loving acts of God toward his people throughout their history. In an article for the Gospel Coalition, Jared Wilson picks up on the language of Malachi 1-2, and he wants us to pick up on that language too. He says, notice the past tense, I have loved. I have loved you. Why? He answers, because God wants his people to obey him out of awe of historic faithfulness. Because he wants them to honor and glorify him out of remembrance of his covenantal love and blessings. This is the root of all worshipful obedience in the present belief in God's historic love. Israel was such an unlikely recipient of God's favor. Small and weak and insignificant. But God set his affection on Israel. He promised to bless the world through Israel. He delivered Israel out of slavery in Egypt with his mighty hand. He brought Israel into the promised land. God faithfully disciplined Israel in a rebellion. He sent his people to captivity. He delivered them again, just as he said he would. Time and again, God demonstrated his love for his people by blessing them, by rescuing them, by forgiving them, by restoring them. Any cursory look at his faithfulness through history would neutralize the current sense that his love for them was somehow lacking. Any cursory look at his faithfulness through history would neutralize the current sense that his love for them was somehow lacking. Just as reminiscing of God's faithfulness in our own lives will assure us of his love as well. Don't become like those people. Or what have you done for me lately? What have you done for me, period? God, what have you done for me in my whole life? Go ahead and start to take inventory. Go ahead and think back to God's goodness over time toward you. And I know it's going to sound a little hokey to contemporary years, but we sang the song anyway because Johnson Oatman Jr. had some good counsel penned into his lyrics of that song. When upon life's billows you are tempest-tossed, when you are discouraged thinking all is lost, count your many blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. Without a doubt, life can be hard and full of sustained challenges that can be so discouraging. But when we remember the occasions of the Lord's faithfulness, of his goodness, of his many blessings, we will know at least then that he cares for us. There's a reason, you know, that the scripture continuously tells us to remember. Because we're forgetful people. And if we forget these things... We may very well become distant from God. We could even become bitter towards God, as Israel had. So here again, Jared Wilson's words, the way for believers, for you and I to remain worshipfully obedient, is to be in awe of God's historic faithfulness. It is to trust in God's historic love. And of course, unlike the people of Malachi's day, we are blessed to know the grandest expression of that love. What all the deliverances and all the rescues and all the mercies of God foreshadowed. The way that you and I can be confident in the love of God is what? In the fact that he gave his only son to bear the penalty for our sin. 
to spare us from the wrath that we deserve and offer us forgiveness that leads to eternal life with him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Whoever believes this will live forever. Whoever believes this will have eternal life. Does that or does that not speak to the love of God? That he would rescue us and reconcile us to himself through the shed blood of his own son that we might dwell with him forever. The question in the hearts and the minds of the people of Malachi's day that God addressed before it was even said out loud is one that he answered definitively for all people in all times in the message of the gospel. In the gospel, the love of God is affirmed. And yet even we who are beneficiaries of the gospel can sometimes falter under the relentless trials of life, can sometimes question in the period of unmet expectations, can forget the mercies of God that have been lavished on us through the years. God have mercy on us forgetful people. This is why we must regularly rehearse the gospel, beloved. This is why we have to preach it to ourselves all the time. This is why we say it, why we sing it, why we pray it, why we preach it, why we see it Sunday after Sunday after Sunday in worship. And some people coming in might say, don't you have a different story? <laughs> yeah, but we don't have a better story. And we need to remember this story because it's his story of his great love for us. We are not really that different from the people in Malachi's day. We can easily be thrown into apathy by a wave of disappointing circumstances. We can be prone to despair by failing to recall and rest in God's historic love. It's why we remember it. It's why we declare it. I have loved you. That's God's message. I have loved you. I loved you then, I love you still, and I love you now. Father, we praise you and thank you this morning for a steadfast love that is nearly incomprehensible. And yet we believe it. We receive it and we rejoice in it. Help us to live in it with the confidence that you want it to produce in us. Walk with us through our painful present and help us not to be separated from you. Holy Spirit, bring to mind those things which we have learned and experienced about who you are, what you do, God, that we might never wander far from our awareness of your historic love that keeps us worshipfully obedient. May the glory be yours as we rejoice in your love. Christ's name, amen.